0: Welcome to the Sedated Man Podcast. We're here to help you break free from all that's holding you down and provide you with the tools to embrace the brotherhood of Christ. It's time to stand back up and be the man you were meant to be. Here's your host, Mike Baker. All right, well, here we are. What I promised you was the Proving God series, and that's what this is. I'm getting ready to drop 11 different sections from a man I know who actually did a booklet called Proving the Bible's a Word of God. Now, if you would like to see the booklet itself or you would like to download the audios for yourself, they're all available for free. And if you go to my Patreon page, you'll find the links to those booklets. There are also some PowerPoints and some other things when you dig a little. Now, I know it's taken me a little while to get here, but I'm not, I wasn't interested in reinventing the wheel. And I've actually decided to drop all of these at the same time. So these are audios. This is the only portion that will be video if you're watching on YouTube and then it will go to the audio. This video will be inserted before each and every one of them. So I'm gonna try and make it brief so that you guys aren't sick of listening to me, but it it just depends. Some people come in in the middle and I want them to be caught up, okay? Now I recently, you guys remember, I've been talking for a while now on the whole, I mean, besides the trust of science thing, how the things that are going on in the world right now are not abortion and LGBTQ rights and all that. It's a failure to have faith. It's a failure to prove your own belief in God to yourself. I've always told you guys, you've got to know what you believe and you've got to know why you believe it. And we are here not to not to dance on the little fires that come off the big one. We're here to deal with the fire. Now, keep in mind, this is not all inclusive what you're about to hear. I'm getting ready to drop 11 podcasts because I want you to have all the info. These 11 podcasts should just be the beginning of your journey to get back to proving God. I recently read an article on the declining faith in America on the Daily Wire. In the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, 98% of people had faith in God. As of 2022, 81%. That might seem like you might be looking at that, Mike, that's still still a high number. Yes, it is. But we've lost serious ground here. Because once momentum gets going, it's hard to stop. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. And that's what this is about, really. So, these are the podcasts that will be dropped. External evidences, internal evidences, more internal evidences, prophecies of the Messiah, more messianic prophecy, the plan, phase two, phase three, four, Phase five, phase six, phase six, seven, and phase seven, eight. Remember, once again, this is a skeleton of the amount of information that's out there. If you look on my Patreon page, there is a ton of other books that you can go through to look at the science, to look at why God does exist. People get really bristly when you say prove. But the truth is, the proof is out there. There is enough evidence to make the case. It's up to us. It's up to you. Don't be the guy who sits on his butt when his family needs him to be the guy who steps up, who takes a stand, and who, who then, by proving God, can put all of this other nonsense to the side, and we can move forward. Remember, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. If you got questions of me, you can email me at mike at the city of Man.com. If you have questions of Jay, the guy who's actually talking in this, you can reach him through the websites listed on Patreon. Good luck. My prayers are with you. Dig in and dig hard. Baker out.
1: Okay, well, we... Uh... Been kind of starting to work through these PowerPoint presentations that uh, Luke Wilson put together on the uh, study books, and uh, study books will work if a person will work them. They are they're tracks to run on. Um, they're not intended to shut the person who's using them brain down, but they are an excellent track. Um, seem to be time tested and and uh, work pretty well if a person will use them. Use them on a consistent basis. They'll they'll get the people you're working with where they need to go. Um, And so one of the foundational things you always have to do, you have to come back and prove the authority of the word. If you don't establish the authority of the word, then you're wasting your time. And uh, that's increasingly clear in a generation that is uh, postmodern, where words don't have meaning. There's no such thing as a document of authority. Over authority anywhere of any kind. And so what you're doing in this study you're also moving people over a lot of mental barriers. That's why it's one of the more challenging ones because uh you have to do so many things and you have to you have such a broad scope, but you have to bring it down to such a narrow focus. So it's a it's a challenge to to do. Uh but but this this works. And so tonight we'll continue on with a things we've been doing, throw a few more of the video presentations in. Um, tonight we're going to begin looking at the internal evidences. Um, we spent some time uh, working on the external things, uh, the evidence from archaeology and uh, natural science. For example, <coughs> the Bible is uh, the major guide to archaeological finds in the Middle East. And it's, it's really accurate. And... Uh, the history involved is really accurate, which we'll detail a little bit more tonight. Um, and then, of course, you have to deal with the evolution, creation, intelligent design issues. Um, it's, it's impossible to believe in evolution and the Bible at the same time. Um, that would be pretty close to a definition of insanity to be able to do that. So you have to deal with those things. But, you know, once you deal with the archaeology, once you deal with the evolution, creation things... See that still doesn't prove that God's the author. One of the challenges you sometimes come up against is people say well you can't you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. But if you think about it that's exactly the only way it can be proven. See man could write a book that's accurate if and you could test it by externals. See so in order to prove that God wrote it there have to be some internal things that man couldn't duplicate. And so that's a very key point in your reasoning process, or apologetics is the more general term for it, is to make the point, oh, that you have to use the Bible to prove the Bible. There have to be things on a scope and a scale on the inside that the human being could not duplicate. And that's how you're going to distinguish it from a book that man would write. Man writes a book, you test it externally. God writes a book, you not only test it externally, But the key things are going to be in the internal uh, side of it. Any thoughts or comments on on that before we dive into this? Nick.
2: Just a quick question. What would be the argument for not using the Bible to prove the Bible?
1: Well, see, any of your scientific type guys, they're going to say if you use the Bible... To try to prove the Bible, you're engaged in circular reasoning. See, so that's why you have to come back and use this other tack here. And it's actually a common, pretty common argument that you're going to get. Uh, particularly people got more of a college education. You have to really be prepared to deal with this one. Other comments? Oh, Bob. Are we, are, we, are we low bat? Okay. You have a comment? Okay. Why don't you you join us over here then, Bob?
2: (laughs) But uh, it's just, when you're working with a document like that, the internal consistency is so important because so many of the other documents aren't internally consistent. So, you know, you have to look at the Bible. There's no way to get around it.
1: Yeah, and when you are, like we were looking at the Book of Mormon, for example, or, say, the Vedas or the Quran, you know, you are looking at the material inside. But to some degree, you're testing it externally. Uh, When you're looking at the Bible, you're actually going another step here because the internal things that you're looking at are way different than anything that's in any other book. And so, of course, you're trying to bring that to the attention of somebody who's maybe skeptical to start with, so it, it may be challenging to bring across those barriers. Other comments? Yeah, Alan guys give me a workout here tonight how do you deal with the accusation that the canon was put together by only using the books that were consistent with one another Mm -hmm. well see the issue of, of canonicity you know is you know one that requires obviously a lot of scholarship and a lot of a lot of digging. Uh, the, in a simple way, the Old Testament canon was put together by Ezra, or basically at the time of Ezra the scribe, in uh, 400 B.C. Okay. And that was a, a, a canon that was, at the time, there were Prophets. So you would have people who would be able to tell which was inspired and which wasn't. Now, when you're looking to see whether or not those prophets were accurate, again, what you're looking at is some of the internal things that we're going to cover here. When it comes to the New Testament, you have the same situation. You had, uh, um, at at the time that the New Testament letters were written, you still had people with gifts of the Spirit, like the ability to uh, discern between truth-telling and lie-telling spirits, for example. People who would be able to tell which ones were accurate. And so, see, it's really interesting, <clears throat> by 100 A.D., there's actually very little controversy over which of the scrolls should be included in the New Testament canon. There's a little bit of discussion over, say, Second Peter maybe, or or Jude, or a couple others, but the discussion is so small that you can tell that those early churches had already agreed as to which ones were inspired. And um, so, now the other thing is the Old Testament lampstand, the, the candlestick of the Old Testament temple or tabernacle, has 66 parts. And it's the foreshadow of the Word of God. So, pretty clear that there should only be sixty six books in in one completed piece, and that 's how many end up with and Nobody at the time even there's no record or any indication at the time that anybody even thought in terms of that candlestick having the the sixty six parts so it kind of came together piece by piece um, what we would call providentially and um if a person wants to go into it deeper than that, then you start diving into the manuscript evidence, and which you can do. I mean, there's there's plenty of it. But um, a simple term, simple answer is, is you had people who claimed to be prophets, and who could establish their ability as prophets to establish first the Old Testament canon, and then the New Testament canon. Which is why the church then is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, because most of the apostles were dead by the 70 A.D. destruction, uh, or somewhere in that same category. Only the apostle John lived a lot longer. So, um, you got a lot of things at work in that, and that's where they attack it, you know, like through the Da Vinci Code, things like that. You know, one of the charges they make is the Catholic Church um, collected the the canon, and therefore, since we know the Catholic Church is corrupt, therefore the canonization of the New Testament is corrupt. And the Catholic Church didn't help out by adding 14 extra books to the Old Testament <laughs> later. Um, that all creates more confusion. Um, but if you, if you think in terms of, okay, <clears throat> the Old Testament then, the scrolls <clears throat> that were copied and circulated were the 39 books of the Old Testament. For nearly 400 years. The scrolls. The books that were circulated. Recognized by the churches. Were the 27 books of the New Testament. And you had people that were inspired. On both ends of that. Now. See the internal things then. Are going to establish whether or not. Those good people were correct. In their canonicity. Let's say they were incorrect. Then there'd be a gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It wouldn't mesh. Um, you, you wouldn't have the New Testament be able to mesh. You wouldn't have the Old Testament be able to mesh um, if human beings were doing that with, apart from inspiration. So those are all things you have to look at uh, in terms of that. So that's a great question, Ellen, and one you do have to deal with sometimes in a lot of detail uh, when you're working with people another comment you want to make on that? Okay. Rick?
3: If anybody wants a reference, it wasn't an exhaustive study by any means, but we did spend two weeks when you were gone, when you were starting on Revelation, since people asked similar questions. But again, to summarize it, the picture is that Roman Catholicism, which didn't even fully develop till after 300, somehow had all these bunch of books, and then they selected. And as you're pointing out, there was no question all the, the early churches, not, I mean, all over the world, I mean, yeah, well-established in North Africa and, and Greece and, and Rome and all over, um, they recognized all the books. There were just less than a half dozen that somebody questioned here or there. Somebody would accept it here. Somebody said, "Well, we're not sure." Type situation, but uh, anybody can reference that by going to the the church website and going back about a year and a half, two years ago, and uh, we did a two week study on the canon.
1: <clears throat> Good point. I mean, and that's again, that's important stuff. Uh, the Catholic Church. Uh, I haven't seen the ads, but people told me about them. Catholic churches, Roman Catholic churches right now running ads, you know, basically come on back. And how many have seen those, any of those ads? <clears throat> Maybe they're just circulating in Great Falls, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> but, you know, they they teach the Catholics from the time they're little. Once you're a Catholic, always a Catholic, and if you fall away or go away from the church, some other church, you'll always come back. That's one of the things they plant in their head, see? So these ads are <clears throat> pushing the idea, come back, and they are showing you know, pictures of first communion and confirmation classes and, and sprinkling and and all the things that go with that in an attempt to pull them back in. But one of the things that they claim in that ad, the people who watched it told me, several people told me, uh, was that the Catholic Church claim in that ad to be the ones who the one that put the books of the Bible together. And then under inspiration they say they put the books together. So that's, those are the type of claims that you really have to deal with out there. And like I say, they don't, they don't help the picture because it's easy to demonstrate the Catholic Church has been corrupt uh, from its formation. So, other comments? See, Alan and Rick. <laughs>
3: Since we're trying to prove the Bible's word of God by internal
1: evidence, what do you do when it seemingly find contradictions in the Bible itself? Again, um, the type of things they try to point out as contradictions are small. So where I try to go with that is I say, okay, let, let me paint the big picture first. Okay, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to prove to you that Jesus is who he says he is. That Jesus is risen and therefore Jesus has the authority. Okay, and then, then you end up dealing with uh, contradictions like the difference between the genealogy of Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3, type of things. Well, what turns what seems to be a contradiction is actually just the opposite. It's a confirmation of, of uh, the authenticity of the scripture in one's Mary's genealogy, one's Joseph's genealogy. To Joseph, he's heir to the throne. Two Marys of the direct lineage of David, and so you can, you know, and every time you have a contradiction, you can slowly work through that on that basis. In Luke chapter three, what do you do with the second Cainan or Canaan that's not in the Genesis record? Well, same way in uh, in the Matthew genealogy, or you know, it's also the Luke three, there's another one in different streams. Not all the genealogies included everybody. That was in him. In fact, is if you go back into First Chronicles, which I'm sure you've done some of that, um, you know you have little different gaps there that you sometimes can can fill in. So it's well known that a a son, the such and such being somebody's son, might actually be a grandson or even a great grandson. And in Matthew's genealogy, if you'll follow that through, you'll notice it doesn't even list all the kings. See when it says that there's from David to the deportation to Babylon, there's 14 generations. Well, they left out a whole bunch to get there. See? And so those are, again, the sort of things that you work through. But you got to have somebody who's willing to work through them with you. If you got somebody who's looking for an excuse to bail out, I guarantee you they'll take it. Let's see, was it Rick? Okay, there you
3: are. I just wanted to mention, since you mentioned it, that it's important to understand why Catholicism makes that claim, it's because for the average Catholic, due to their indoctrination, the church is the authority, not the Word of God. So that's why they're trying to say that the Bible came from the church rather than the other way around.
1: Yeah. That's a really good point. And again, how many of you here were Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic background? There's a number of you that were. And, you know, it's it's sometimes pretty hard to help a person get over to the point where the scripture is the authority rather than the church, because that requires, if especially if it's ingrained in a person, that's a very, very difficult switch to make. So, um, John, in, in a couple places, points out that there are many other things that Jesus did. They weren't written. Uh, if they're written in detail, the world wouldn't even be able to contain all of the information in regards to that. Uh, but the things we have were written so that we might believe. And then also in uh, the closing of the book to the Colossians, Paul points out that he wrote a letter to the Laodiceans, and they're supposed to swap letters. Now, that doesn't mean that the letter to the Laodiceans was not inspired. It's just it wasn't necessary to be included in the um, 27 books of the New Testament. So it had to be pared down uh, at some point, according to God's plan, otherwise we'd have a Bible that would be so thick that we'd never get through it on Bob Edgar's Bible reading schedule. Or you'd never even. Or worse yet, you'd never even get it on your cell phone. I mean, that'd be that'd be really bad. Um, yeah. And uh, another point too, like in, in Second Thessalonians, for example, he he references the idea that there are other letters see that were in circulation that weren't, they're pretended to be as if from the apostles, but they weren't. And so that's why Paul makes a definite point at the end of 2 Thessalonians to say, this is the mark that I make in every letter, this is how I write. So you had inspired letters that weren't included, you had a lot of uninspired letters that were false or in circulation, and then you had the ones that were inspired that were included. And uh, again, that's why I think that lampstand there, in Exodus is so important because it lets you know that there's going to be 66. And that was 1,500 years before Christ. So, all right, well, we'll continue here. <clears throat> so, as we are talking about, then, proof that the Bible is the word of God must be internal. Just for a lot of the reasons that we're just discussing here. And uh, you have to work somebody through that point. A human can write a book that's completely accurate. Not likely, but it could be done. <clears> that doesn't make it inspired. So the proof's got to come in the form of the internal evidence that's what the human mind cannot duplicate. And again, that's in, in that section then is where you end up dealing with the contradictions and, and canonicity and all that other stuff to whatever degree you need to go on that. So, the old homesteader... Now, what I'm doing here... I'm going to give you a section of the slide presentation, and then I'm going to come back and put the video on. Okay. Now, the video has got a tremendous amount of information packed in six or seven-minute space. And that's why if you're doing this, a lot of times you're going to find it beneficial to do the slide presentation because you're going to be somewhat familiar. But then show the video because that's, now your person is going to have enough information that the video is going to make more sense to them. And um, you want to keep that in mind. So, what you got here, you got a whole homesteader shack. Uh, 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 one thing I can tell you, the muskrats didn't build it. Uh, beavers didn't put that up. Uh, space aliens didn't do it. Those um, men did it. Um, I've sometimes found uh, some of the really old shacks here um, where, where you can tell that the, that the logs were cut uh, shaped with a, a broadhead axe. Um, my grandfather used to have one of those hanging in the old shed there at, uh, at McAllister, and uh, that's that's what they used. is broad is broad and it was heavy, and you could the guys that were good with it could make it look like it was planed. Um, you know, that's that's the type of axe that Abraham Lincoln could hold straight out. So. <clears throat> Uh, muskrats don't do that. Beavers don't do that. And aliens, well, based on all the movies, they wouldn't do it. So uh, we know it was man that did that. So the point is that sometimes they call it prima facie. That is, it's on its on its own self, stands on its own evidencing. And so the design, see, is proof of the existence of a designer. Now, that's a key point here, actually, because, you see, when, when we're looking at... Um, at life this is where the whole intelligent design debate is really critical because what what these guys are willing to do is to look at the design and say there's no designer they look at the simple the 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 cell single cell which is we know some of the things we've seen are incredibly complex and they're still willing to say that there's no designer now if you can't get from this point to this point then you got somebody at that, at that position in their life, their brain dead, and you 've got to wait till something wakes them up um, it 's unfortunate that that 's the case, but that 's where you 're really at so proof of the existence of God then would be see this transcendent design because when you 're looking at a cell, what you 've got is you 've got a something physical. And if you remember that one video that we, we showed where they actually went inside the nucleus and shot, showed what was going on inside the nucleus uh, of that cell and then how it goes back out. And the cell itself is much more complex than what it takes to assemble um, a Ford automobile. Um, when, you, when you realize that, and that's in the physical realm, when you start looking at the spiritual realm, you're going to look for this transcendent design here. Uh, that's even more complex, and it's very clearly human planning couldn't duplicate. And so the question is, does the Bible offer such a transcendent design? Answer, yes. Further comments on on this? So predictions of history of the Messiah and of a plan carried out over thousands of years are what we're going to be looking at here. So uh, there's a lot of historical prophecies in the Old Testament, hundreds of them, actually. And, uh, for example, in Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham that his descendants would be enslaved in a foreign nation for 400 years. And afterwards, they would come out and, and uh, you know, God would judge the nation in which they, they lived. Now, <clears throat> that's a prophecy of history, not very easy for the scoffers and doubters of the Bible say, well, that that prophecy was written after the events occurred, but whoever rewrote Genesis made it look like it's a prophecy. See, so, um, you know, sometimes what we want to do is then we want to get down to the prophecies. It's not so easy to do that with. And so what we're going to do, first of all, is take a look at Nebuchadnezzar's dream, recorded in Daniel 2. We're going to take a look at the ram and the goat, another prophecy of Daniel, Daniel 8. And then we're going to look at the coming of Cyrus, Uh, prophesied in Isaiah. So, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel was carried captive into Babylon, 605-604 B.C. Um, Three major waves of captives uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar carried into Babylon, and this is the first wave. Daniel apparently was of royal lineage, along with these three buddies, best known to us as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, after some training in the Chaldean schools, he was assigned office with the soothsayers and magicians of Babylon. Uh, I always call it the witch doctor department. You know. And uh, <clears throat> one night, Nebuchadnezzar had a troubling dream that he was pretty sure of his heavenly origin uh, from the gods. And so in the morning, he threatened his astrologers. He called them in the morning and said, uh, OK, boys, I had a dream last night. <clears throat> I want to know what the dream means. But since I don't really trust you boys over here in the witch doctor department, you've got to do two things. You've got to tell me, first of all, what the dream was, and then you tell me its interpretation. And if you can't do that, then we're going to kill you, and uh, we're going to put your family to death, and we're going to tear your house down. And you better get on it because you don't have much time. Okay? Well, <clears throat> the uh, magicians, of course, couldn't tell... The king, what the dream was, and they're whining and begging, said, "Yeah, well, just tell us the dream, and then we'll tell you the interpretation." Right. Okay. So Daniel was about to be put to death, and uh, so he asked the king for a little time, and he prayed to God, and the Lord answered his request, and so Daniel was able to tell the king what his dream was. And uh, what you had was you had a statue, the head of gold, silver, bronze. Iron and iron mixed with clay or pottery down here. And then there was a stone that came out of the mountain. The stone was cut out without hands. There it was. And it came and smashed the statue on the feet. The statue fell over, uh, blown to a million smithereens. And in the, the mountain, the stone became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. Okay, So Daniel then told the interpretation of the king. The head of gold was Babylon. The chest and irons of silver were media Persia. The belly and thigh of bronze were Greece. The legs of iron were Rome. And the iron mixed with clay was Rome in its later times after the Republic moved to empire. And then you had the stone cut out without hands, pretty clearly the kingdom of God. Um, So you would know from this that in the days of the Roman kings that God would set up his kingdom, uh, which would last forever. So the iron mixed with clay is a good description of of rome in the days of christ uh you had the roman authorities uh, they're trying to govern a pretty complex and unwieldy empire so they allowed the local boys to be in part of it and so they didn't always get along very well Uh, jesus confirmed to Pilate that uh, he had a kingdom but it was not of this world so you, you have the split here in the roman empire here here you have the kingdom of god coming in Here, that's the stone that's cut out of a mountain. And uh, just as prophesied, then there were four world kingdoms from Babylon until the foundation of the church. So how would the writer of Daniel know that there would be four world kingdoms or not? All right, now you're going to watch and see the video, (coughs) really do a great job with this.
2: Truth. Welcome to today's topic, Part 1 of Fulfilled Prophecies of History within the Bible. In our recent episodes, we've been testing the Bible in regard to the challenge from Isaiah 41, verses 21-23. Isaiah maintained that a living, eternal God had better be able to recount past history and get it right, and be able to foretell the future and then bring it about. Our external testing of the Bible included the topic of archaeology, as well as the question of origins. We have seen that the Bible is amazingly accurate in the realm of archaeology as it speaks of many peoples and places. We've also seen that, when honestly examined in light of all the scientific evidence, the biblical claim of a divine creator fits beautifully with what we observe. Truth in the realm of such external considerations is extremely important, but this by itself does not prove that the Bible is the word of God. Proof must come in the form of eternal planning, revealed in internal evidences of the Bible. Let me explain what I mean. When I was a teenager, I used to go camping in the Tobacco Root Mountains outside of Ennis, Montana. Hiking up those old roads, I couldn't help but notice some old run-down miners' cabins. Though nobody had lived in those cabins for probably 50 years or more, it was clear that at some point in the past, human beings had dwelt there. Even though I personally hadn't met any of those miners', I didn't question their existence because the design of the cabins was clearly of human origin. Obviously, no other creature is capable of building such a structure. In the same way, proof of the existence of God would be a transcendent design, carried out on a scale which chance or human planning could not possibly construct. So today we will extend our investigation of the Bible to see if the scriptures offer such an eternal plan. Let's look at the second part of Isaiah's challenge. Does the Bible foretell the future in a way that couldn't be forged by human cunning? Though there are many prophecies of history within the Bible, let's focus this discussion by examining three examples that are representative of the authorship of an eternal God. Today, we only have time to look at one. We will begin with the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon as communicated in Daniel chapter 2. As a youth, Daniel was carried captive by the Babylonians in the first deportation of the Jews, around 600 years before the birth of Christ. After some training in Chaldean schools, he was assigned office with the soothsayers and magicians of Babylon. One night, Nebuchadnezzar had a very troubling dream. And he recognized that this wasn't just from eating the wrong foods before bed. Rather, there was some sort of supernatural communication going on. He called in his conjurers to see if they could interpret his dream. However, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't ruler of the world because he was a dummy. He was the type of guy that if he called up the psychic hotline, he would expect that the psychic would already know his name without asking for any information. So Nebuchadnezzar would not tell these Chaldean magicians his dream. He demanded, at the threat of their lives, that they first make known his dream and then give him the interpretation. Of course, none of them had a clue as to what the king had dreamed. However, when Daniel heard of this, he prayed and then requested to be brought before Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 35, records Daniel's recounting of the dream to the king. What Nebuchadnezzar had seen was a statue of extraordinary splendor. This statue had a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and then feet of iron mixed with clay. He then saw a stone that was cut out without hands and it struck the statue at the feet of iron mixed with clay and completely destroyed it. That stone then became a great mountain, which filled the whole earth. Daniel then made known the interpretation before the king. Daniel chapter 2, verses 36-44, to plainly tells of four earthly kingdoms and then one divine kingdom. Daniel said that Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. This represented the world power of Babylon. Daniel then spoke in general terms of three kingdoms that were to come. Historically, we can look back and see that the chest and arms of silver represented the joint kingdom of Media Persia. The belly and thighs of bronze symbolized Greece, while the legs of iron and feet of iron mixed with clay signified Rome in its early and then latter days. Daniel says that the stone cut out without hands was a divine kingdom that would be set up by the God of heaven. A little extra information was given in reference to the fourth kingdom, that is, Rome. In the latter days of its existence, it would be a divided kingdom. This certainly is a good description of Rome in the days of Jesus Christ. Roman rule had spanned throughout much of the world, as Rome had morphed from a republic into an empire. Just as the United States today had its military spread throughout the world, such was the Roman Empire in the time of Jesus. Because it was difficult to control such a large territory, Rome allowed a lot of self-government by its vanquished nations as long as they paid their tribute. We get a clear demonstration of this iron mixed with clay on the night in which Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Jesus had to stay in trial before three different governing bodies that night. First of all, he stood before the Jewish religious hierarchy, then before King Herod, who was some sort of puppet king that the Romans had appointed over the Jews, and then finally, Jesus stood before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, these local rulers did not mix well with the Romans, just as the iron of the statue did not adhere to the clay. However, there was always the toughness of iron. In other words, there was the continual presence of the Roman army to enforce its will. As for the divine kingdom, remember that in the dream, this stone struck the statue at its feet. This dream foretold that God's kingdom would be established in the days of Roman control. And this is exactly what happened. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, Jesus confirmed that he was a king. John 18, verses 35 to 36, tells us that Jesus answered Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. Just as prophesied in the book of Daniel, there were four world kingdoms from Babylon until the foundation in A.D. 30 of the divine kingdom, that is, Christ's church. Each of these world powers has since been swept into the dustbin of history. We know that the Babylonian Empire fell long ago. How about the medio persian Empire? It is also gone. What about the world dominion of the Greeks? It is history. And the Romans? They too have been relegated to the past. On the other hand, Jesus' church started small, but since has continued to spread across national boundaries, growing into all parts of the world. Although this particular prophecy wasn't detailed, in naming each of these kingdoms, its accuracy cannot be challenged from what we know with the 2020 vision of hindsight. Something we need to ask, how would Daniel have known that there would be four world kingdoms from Babylon to the beginning of Christ's church? Who is to say that there wouldn't be six world powers, or maybe only two? Someone knew what was going to happen ahead of time and foretold it for our benefit so that we may know that the author of the Bible is indeed the Sovereign God, who is also the author of history. In our next episode, we will examine two more historical prophecies within the Old Testament that are even more detailed than this first one. We will continue to behold that transcendent design within the Scriptures, which could not be duplicated by human planning. Tune in next time as we look at Part 2 of Fulfilled Prophecies of History within the Bible. I'm Luke Wilson, and this has been targeting truth
1: so any comments or questions on that again those the visuals really help Christopher
3: simple question uh Transcendent design, what is meant by that?
1: Uh, Overarching, overall, covering everything. Well, yeah. You you know, what you're dealing with is actually a plan that was in existence before the foundation of the world. And so transcendence is going to be the only word that's going to touch that. Well... Eternal tells you time, but see, transcendent gives you a a passing through picture. See, so you know a little a nuance, I guess. Yeah, Dan.
3: seem to remember he goes over uh, the, Dead sea Stro- the Dead Sea Scrolls. That'll be a little while. Okay. Um, maybe I'll ask my question then.
1: Okay. Yeah. Right. So, like we talked about, the, uh, the next one then is the ram and the goat. Okay. And this is in Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Here you have a picture of a ram, and he's got two horns with the second horn coming up longer. And then uh, he's pushing west and north and south. And then all of a sudden out of the west comes a billy goat with a single horn between his eyes. He's moving so fast he doesn't touch the ground. And he smashes the ram, tramples him in the ground. And then when that happens, then the, uh, the horn, the big horn that was in the center, is broken off. And four horns come up in its place. And uh, there's a little bit of a picture there. Um, Obviously, the artists are going to have a little bit different conception of what that looks like. But this interpretation is given in Daniel chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. The ram represents uh, Media and Persia. Um, If you read about, uh, you know, if you go clear back to Genesis chapter 10, you can see the origin of the Medes or the Elamites way back there. And you can follow them on through. And uh, you never heard of the Persians until... About this time, Cyrus the Great uh, basically took over the kingdom and uh, made the Persians dominant. And so from that time on, it's known as the Persian Empire. Shaggy goat represents Greece coming from the west. Uh, The large horn was the Greek Empire's first king. And the four horns, which represent the four kingdoms, the four horns represent the four kingdoms, which arose from the first king's power. So uh, the two horns, like I say, is. uh, Medes and Persians had a joint kingdom. Medes were stronger at first, but the Persians began to dominate and became stronger than the Medes had ever been. The um, Persian Empire was spreading all directions but east. In fact, if you saw any of the movies, you know, like the, the three, last of the 3,000 or whatever, 300, um, you know, featuring the battles at Thermopylae and, and those places, see, the Greeks stopped the westwards uh, push of the Persian Empire. In uh, some of those uh, great battles, uh, like the Battle of Marathon, for example, um, goat was pictured as flying um, it, when alexander the great Alexander the Great's father was Philip of Macedon. up to this point, the Greeks had just been a collection of city states who occasionally ally with one another and generally war with each other with uh you know various democracies rising and falling amidst the Greeks. But Philip of Macedon was able to kind of unite the Greek city-states and became the, the hegemon, which is where our word hegemony comes from. And Ale- when he died, and some think that Alexander put his own dad to death, uh, there's no personal ambition in those days like there is now, um, <clears throat> Alexander then became the hegemon, and right away then he took his troops to conquer the Persian Empire. They went down to the narrow neck of water that's between um, Greece, modern-day Greece and Turkey, the place called the Hellespont, which stands for the Greeks' point, and uh, crossed there, and um, just smashed the Roman Empire or the Persian Empire very quickly. Um, the uh, the Persian emperor was out in the lead. He fled and he left his wife and children to the care of Alexander. Okay. Uh, great guy and uh in 10 years alexander conquered uh, babylon he conquered egypt <clears throat> he uh conquered a whole bunch of uh, siberia east of the caspian sea in fact as his, his wife uh, was from what the greeks called Saugdiana. Uh he went down and uh, captured a bunch of uh, india and uh and his troops turned back and uh And uh, Alexander himself was wounded pretty severely with an arrow through the lungs um, and uh, went on board a ship, ended up at Babylon and uh, died under suspicious circumstances. Some people think he drank himself to death. Some people think that he uh, was poisoned, but he died. Um, But he marched his troops 17,000 miles, marched his troops and conquered, marched 17,000 miles in ten years, and captured all that territory in the process. So it was. That's why you can see that Billy Goat is pictured as moving so fast he doesn't touch the ground. And uh, the, the the legend is that uh, when he got to the Indus River and couldn't go any further, that he that he cried because there were no more worlds left to conquer. So he was one of the the greatest generals, probably the greatest. Secular general for sure in the history of the world not only never lost a war, never lost a battle. The uh, horn was broken off, then replaced by four smaller horns. Um, After his death in 322, uh, there was a little bit of infighting for a while, and then the kingdom ended up being divided among four generals. Ptolemy got Egypt, Seleucus got uh, Syria and Palestine, and points east, Uh, Cassander got Macedonia. Lysimachus got uh, Thracian Asia Minor. So that's how that, that split up, and that's why the four horns. To give an example, the Ptolemies continued to rule Egypt, and the last uh, Ptolemy monarch was a, a lady known as Cleopatra. Okay. The um, Seleucus, um, generally they had the name Antiochus. So you're going to hear in the book of Acts Antioch of Syria, and the port city for Antioch of Syria is Seleucus. Okay? It's named after these guys right here. Okay. So he had a lot of accuracy and a lot of detail. God knew what was going to happen ahead of time. Now our next video production.
2: Hello, I'm Luke Wilson and this is Targeting Truth. Welcome to today's topic, part two of Fulfilled Prophecies of History within the Bible. In our last episode, we began to turn our attention to evidences within the Bible. These internal evidences are the crux of our testing of the Bible. They will ultimately prove that the Bible is the Word of God. We opened our examination of internal evidences with the fulfilled historical prophecy of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The statues seen by Nebuchadnezzar consisted of a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron mixed with common clay. These represented the world kingdoms of Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, and then Rome. There was a stone cut out without hands that struck the statue at the feet, completely destroying the statue. That stone then became a mountain that filled the whole earth. This is an excellent description of Christ's church. It started small in the days of the Roman Empire, but has since spread throughout all nations of the world. Today we'll look at two more fulfilled prophecies of history from the Bible. First, we'll check out a vision of Daniel about a ram and a goat. And then we will see an amazing prediction of the coming of Cyrus as foretold by Isaiah the prophet. In Daniel chapter 8, we get an account of this vision of Daniel concerning the ram and the goat. The first thing Daniel saw was a ram with two horns standing in front of a canal. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. Daniel saw this ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him. The ram did whatever he pleased and magnified himself. While Daniel was watching... Suddenly a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth, without even touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. This goat was enraged at the ram and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. The scripture tells us that he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. Then he hurled him to the ground and finally trampled on him. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place came up four horns pointing four different directions. Daniel didn't know what this vision meant, so he had to get divine help to understand it. Daniel 8, verses 20 through 22, give the interpretation. They read The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media in Persia, and the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, and the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. This interpretation is amazingly accurate with what we know to be true historically. The ram represented Media Persia. The second horn came up later, but was stronger than the first. This is exactly what happened in 550 BC when Cyrus the Great of Persia triumphed over his grandfather, the king of the Medes. Cyrus brought Persia to power, but maintained many of the Median nobles as well as many of their customs. However, Persia was dominant, so though many Greek historians spoke of the beginning of this empire as a Median empire, we have long since called it the Persian Empire. In Daniel's vision, the ram was pushing in three directions the Persian Empire was extending to Armenia in the north, Syria, Asia Minor, and Babylon in the west, and Egypt in the south. Seemingly out of nowhere came this goat representing the kingdom of Greece. According to the book of Daniel, the conspicuous horn represents the first king of the Greek empire. Do you know who that was? I'll give you a hint. He is famous as a great military strategist, and has had numerous books written and movies made about him. It was Alexander the Great. Truly, one of the greatest military minds the world has ever known. The goat was pictured as flying over the surface of the earth. Certainly that fits well with Alexander the Great's conquest of the world in eleven short years, after which he wept that there were no more worlds to conquer. Alexander really was an amazing leader. His army never even lost one battle. And Alexander also was single-handedly responsible for Greek language and culture being spread throughout the whole world now back to the prophecy the goat struck the ram hurled him to the ground and then trampled him sure enough alexander defeated Darius of persia in three decisive battles at granicus issus and shushan however as soon as the goat magnified himself the large horn was broken off and replaced with four horns true to the prophecy Alexander the Great died suddenly at 33 years old of alcohol and fever in Babylon. In the vision, that great horn was replaced by four horns, each pointing a different direction. Ultimately, the kingdom controlled by Alexander the Great was divided up among four of his generals. Cassander ruled Macedonia, Lysimachus governed Thrace and Asia Minor, Ptolemy was over Egypt, and Seleucus commanded Syria, and Palestine. This vision of the ram and the goat is so amazingly detailed and accurate that there is only one logical explanation. An eternal God knew ahead of time what was going to happen, and he recorded it so that we would know that the Bible is indeed the Word of God. Let's look at one other amazing prophecy of history. The coming of Cyrus was foretold by Isaiah about 150 years before Cyrus was even born. The complete prophecy is found in Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 24, through chapter 45, verse 7. Isaiah prophesied from 740 years before Christ until 700 B.C. In 605 B.C., the Babylonians conquered Judah and later destroyed the temple. By the way, Judah's captivity to Babylon was also foretold by Isaiah the prophet. Fifty years later, Babylon was captured by the Persian king, Cyrus the Great. Isaiah 44:28 actually calls Cyrus by name and predicts that he would give a decree allowing Jerusalem to be rebuilt and the temple's foundation to be laid. Now I want you to stop and think about this. Do you know who the President of the United States will be even five years from now? How about 150 years from now? Could you tell me his name? Yet, through Isaiah the prophet, God specifically named Cyrus more than 175 years before these events. According to Isaiah 45, verse 3, God did this for the benefit of Cyrus. It reads, In order that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. He further explains in verse 6 that this prophecy is for the sake of all people throughout time. God says that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun, that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. These representative prophecies of history that we've examined show the incredible accuracy of the Old Testament and foretelling events of the future. There is no God other than the living eternal God who can do this. There is no book other than the Bible that records these prophecies in a setting that can be tested. The Bible withstands all critical examination and shows clearly that it is of divine origin. In our next episode, we will examine specific prophecies of Jesus foretold in the Old Testament. We will also check out the Dead Sea Scrolls and see what they have to offer us concerning the dating of these prophecies. Tune in next time as we look at fulfilled prophecies of the Christ within the Bible. I'm Luke Wilson, and this has been... Targeting truth.
1: <clears throat> now, in the slide presentation, I didn't have time to deal with Persia, so we'll do that next week. But I wanted to be sure to get the uh, video presentation in in one one complete package. But this is what's already available on YouTube, and so you can use that in your in your personal Bible studies. As you can see, the the visual side of this really assist in helping the person you're working with conceptualize what's going on and that's the value see of having the visual in conjunction with the audio now i'm sorry that satan's got a hold of most of it and misusing it and twisting it but uh, there's tremendous value here in being able to do this so we have some great tools here and uh, all we need to do is just kind of familiarize ourselves with them and use them now one other point here in closing and uh, he's going to bring this up a little more detail when he does the Dead Sea Scrolls, but that video is will still be in production, and so we'll move on past it before he gets it out. But the, one of the books that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, was uh, a complete book of Daniel. And this dates very clearly at 100 B.C. Now, see, sometimes what they do is they charge that the prophecies were written after the historical events took place, but they're written in such a way as it makes them look like they're prophecies. And uh, so what, what you've got here is you've got, okay, Babylon, that could be historical. Media Persia, say, the, when we're looking at the, golden, the, the statue at the golden head, Media Persia, that could be historical. Um, the Greeks, uh, that could be. Romans, even that could be a little bit historical. But, see, Rome really didn't gain dominance over the Greek portion uh, until about 100 B.C. And he didn't capture Judah until around, around figure 70 B.C. So Daniel was clearly written before that. But that prophecy predicts in the days of the Roman kings, predicts the coming of the kingdom of God. See, now, you can't what I'm driving at is you can't fake that. You couldn't have written that afterwards because it was clearly written down, recorded, circulated in the scrolls hundreds of years before the Christ came. Now also another aspect you have to consider is the Greek version of the Old Testament uh, called the LXx It uh, was in you know translated from Hebrew to Greek, between 250 and 200 B.C. That also contained all these prophecies, and Rome really hadn't gained ascendancy in the East at the time that these things were in circulation. So it's really clear that the prophecy could not have been written afterward. It had to be written ahead of time. And so that's where you start to get your leverage on establishing here the the plan of God and uh, establishing the truthfulness of the record.
0: Thanks for listening to The Sedated Man, bringing Christian men back to power in their homes, congregations, and communities. We'll see you next time.